Chapter 9 of From Ritual to Romance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dawn Isai. From Ritual to Romance by J.C.L. Weston. Chapter 9 The Fisher King. The gradual process of our investigation has led us to the conclusion that the elements forming the existing Grail legend, the setting of the story, the nature of the task which awaits the hero, the symbols and their significance, one and all, while finding their counterpart in prehistoric record, present remarkable parallels to the extant practice and belief of countries so widely separated as the British Isles, Russia, and Central Africa. The explanation of so curious a fact, for it is a fact and not a mere hypothesis, may, it was suggested, most probably be found in the theory that, in this fascinating literature we have, the sometimes partially understood, sometimes wholly misinterpreted record of a ritual originally presumed to exercise a life-giving potency, which at one time of universal observance has, even in its decay, shown itself possessed of elements of the most persistent vitality, that if the ritual, which according to our theory, lies at the root of the Grail story, be indeed the ritual of a life cult, it should, in and per se, possess precisely these characteristics, will, I think, be admitted by any fair-minded critic. The point, of course, is, can we definitely prove our theory? i.e. not merely point to striking parallels, but select from the figures and incidents composing our story some one element which, by showing itself capable of explanation on this theory, and on this theory alone, may be held to afford decisive proof of the soundness of our hypothesis. It seems to me that there is one such element in the bewildering complex by which the theory can be thus definitely tested. That is the personality of the central figure, and the title by which he is known. If we can prove that the Fisher King, Qua Fisher King, is an integral part of the ritual, and can be satisfactorily explained alike by its intention and inherent symbolism, we shall, I think, have taken the final step, which will establish our theory upon a sure basis. On the other hand, if the Fisher King, Qua Fisher King, does not fit into our framework, we shall be forced to conclude that, while the provenance of certain elements of the Grail literature is practically assured, the ensemble has been complicated by the introduction of a terminology, which, whether the outcome of serious intention or of mere literary caprice, was foreign to the original source, and so far defies explanation. In this latter case, our theory would not necessarily be Manquet, but would certainly be seriously incomplete. We have already seen that the personality of the king, the nature of the disability under which he is suffering, and the reflex effect exercised upon his folk and his land, correspond, in a most striking manner, to the intimate relation at one time held to exist between the ruler and his land, a relation mainly dependent upon the identification of the king with the divine principle of life and fertility. 
This relation, as we have seen above, exists today among certain African tribes. If we examine more closely into the existing variants of our romances, we shall find that those very variants are not only thoroughly dance le cadre of our proposed solution, but also afford a valuable and hitherto unsuspected indication of the relative priority of the versions. In Chapter 1, I discussed the task of the hero in general. Here I propose to focus attention upon his host, and while in a measure traversing the same ground, to do so with a view to determining the true character of this enigmatic personage. In the Blairist version, the lord of the castle is suffering under no disability whatever. He is described as tall and strong of limb, of no great age, but somewhat bald. Besides the king, there is a dead knight upon a bier, over whose body vespers for the dead are solemnly sung. The wasting of the land, partially restored by Gwen's question concerning the lance, has been caused by the dolorous stroke, i.e. the stroke which brought about the death of the knight, whose identity is here never revealed. Certain versions, which interpolate the account of Joseph of Arimathea and the Grail, allude to Le Riche Pecheur and his heirs as Joseph's descendants, and presumably, for it is not directly stated, guardians of the Grail, but the king himself is here never called by that title. From his connection with the wasteland, it seems more probable that it was the dead knight who filled that role. In the second version of which Gawain is the hero, that of Jukorn, the host, is an old and infirm man. After Gawain has asked the question, we learn that he is really dead, and only compelled to retain the semblance of life till the task of the quest to be achieved. Here again, he is not called the Fisher King. In the Percival versions, on the contrary, we find the name invariably associated with him, but he is not always directly connected with the misfortunes which have fallen upon his land. Thus, while the Varsha of texts are incomplete, breaking off at the critical moment of asking the question, Manasir, who continues and ostensibly completes Varsha, introduces the dead knight. Here, Gundesert, or Gondifer, which I suspect is the more correct form, brother of the king, whose death by treachery has plunged the land in misery, and been the direct cause of the self-wounding of the king. The healing of the king and the restoration of the land depend upon Percival slaying the murderer Partnell. These two versions show a combination of Percival and Gawain themes, such as their respective dates might lead us to expect. Robert de Baron is the only writer who gives a clear and tolerably reasonable account of why the guardian of the grail bears the title of Fish King. In other cases, such as the poems of Cretine and Wolfram, the name is connected with his partiality for fishing, an obviously post hoc addition. The story in question is found in Baron's Joseph of Arimathea. Here we are told how, during the wanderings of that holy man and his companions in the wilderness, certain of the company fell into sin. By the command of God, Bronze, Joseph's brother-in-law, caught a fish which, with the grail, provided a mystic meal of which the unworthy cannot partake. Thus the sinners were separated from the righteous. Henceforward Bronze was known as 
the rich fisher. It is noteworthy, however, that in the Percival romance ascribed to Baron, the title is, as a rule, Roy Pecheur, not Riche Pecheur. In this romance, the king is not suffering from any special malady, but is the victim of extreme old age. Not surprising, as he is bronze himself, who has survived from the dawn of Christianity to the days of King Arthur. We are told that the effect of asking the question will be to restore him to youth, as, a matter of fact, it appears to bring about his death, as he only lives three days after his restoration. When we come to Cretine's poem, we find ourselves confronted with a striking alteration in the presentment. There are not one, but two disabled kings, one suffering from the effects of a wound, the other in extreme old age. Cretine's poem being incomplete, we do not know what he intended to be the result of the achieved quest. But we may, I think, reasonably conclude that the wounded king at least was healed. The Parzival of von Eschenbach follows the same tradition, but is happily complete. Here we find the wounded king was healed. But what becomes of the aged man? Here the grandfather, not as in Cretine the father of the fisher king, we are not told. The Pearl of Vue is, as I have noted above, very unsatisfactory. The illness of the king is badly motivated, and he dies before the achievement of the quest. This romance, while retaining certain interesting and undoubtedly primitive features, is as a whole too late, and remain near a reduction to be of much use in determining the question of origins. The same may be said of the Grand Saint's Grohl and Quest versions, both of which are too closely connected with the prose Lancelot and too obviously intended to develop and complete the Donese of that romance to be relied upon as evidence for the original form of the Grail legend. The version of the Quest is very confused. There are two kings at the Grail castle, Pallas and his father, sometimes the one, sometimes the other, bears the title of Roy Pecheur. There is, besides, an extremely old and desperately wounded king, Mordrains, a contemporary of Joseph, who practically belongs not to the Grail tradition, but to a conversion legend embodied in the Grand Saint Grohl. Finally, in the latest cyclic texts, we have three kings, all of whom are wounded. The above will show that the presentment of the central figure is much confused. Generally termed Leroy Pecheur, he is sometimes described as in middle life and in full possession of his bodily powers. Sometimes, while still comparatively young, he is incapacitated by the effects of a wound and is known also by the title of Roy Mahang, or Maimed King. Sometimes he is in extreme old age, and in certain closely connected versions the two ideas are combined, and we have a wounded fisher king and an aged father, or grandfather. But I would draw attention to the significant fact that in no case is the fisher king a youthful character. That distinction is reserved for his healer and successor, now, is it possible to arrive at any conclusion as to the relative value and probable order of these conflicting variants? 
I think that if we admit that they do in all probability represent a more or less coherent survival of the nature ritual previously discussed, we may, by help of what we know as to the varying forms of that ritual, be enabled to bring some order out of this confusion. If we turn back to chapters 4, 5 and 7 and consult the evidence there given as to the Adonis cults, the spring festivals of European folk, the mumming plays of the British Isles, the main fact that emerges is that in the great majority of these cases, the representative of the spirit of vegetation is considered as dead, and the object of these ceremonies is to restore him to life. This I hold to be the primary form. This section had already been written when I came across the important article by Dr. Givons, referred to in a previous chapter. Certain of his remarks are here so much to the point that I cannot refrain from quoting them. Speaking of the mumming plays, the writer says, The one point in which there is no variation is that the character is killed and brought to life again. The play is a ceremonial performance, or rather it is the development in dramatic form of what was originally a religious or magical rite representing or realizing the revivification of the character slain. This revivification is the one essential and invariable feature of all the mummer's plays in England. In certain cases, for example the famous Roman spring festival of Mamurius Veturius and the Swabian ceremony referred to above, the central figure is an old man. In no case do I find that the representative of vegetation is merely wounded, although the nature of the ritual would obviously admit of such a variant. Thus, taking the extent and recognized forms of the ritual into consideration, we might expect to find that in the earliest and least contaminated version of the Grail story, the central figure would be dead, and the task of the quester that of restoring him to life. Viewed from this standpoint, the Gawain versions, the priority of which is maintainable upon strictly literary grounds, Gawain being the original Arthurian romantic hero, are of extraordinary interest. In the one form we find a dead knight, whose fate is distinctly stated to have involved his land in desolation. In the other, an aged man, who, while preserving the semblance of life, is in reality dead. This last version appears to me, in view of our present knowledge, to be of extreme critical value. There can, I think, be little doubt that in the primary form underlying our extant versions, the king was dead and restored to life. At first, I strongly suspect, by the agency of some mysterious herb or herbs, a feature retained in certain forms of the mumming play. In the next stage, that represented by Boron, he is suffering from extreme old age, and the task of the quest is to restore him to youth. This version is again supported by extant parallels. In each of these cases, it seems most probable that the original ritual, I should wish it to be clearly understood, that I hold the Grail story to have been primarily dramatic and actually performed, involved an act of substitution. The dead king, in the first case, being probably represented by a mere effigy. In the second, being an old man. His place was, at a given moment of the ritual, 
taken by the youth who played the role of the quester. It is noteworthy that, while both Percival and Galahad are represented as mere lads, Gawain, whatever his age at the moment of the Grail quest, was, as we learn from Jochron, dowered by his fairy mistress with the gift of eternal youth. The versions of Gratine and Wolfram, which present us with a wounded fisher king and a father or grandfather in extreme old age, are due, in my opinion, to a literary device intended to combine two existing variants. That the subject matter was well understood by the original redactor of the common source is proved by the nature of the injury. But I hold that in these versions we have passed from the domain of ritual to that of literature. Still, we have a curious indication that the wounding variant may have had its place in the former. The suggestion made above as to the probable existence in the primitive ritual of a substitution ceremony seems to me to provide a possible explanation of the feature found alike in Wolfram and in the closely allied grail section of Son de Nansai, i.e. that the wound of the king was a punishment for sin. He had conceived a passion for a pagan princess. Now there would be no incongruity in representing the dead king as reborn in youthful form. The aged king as revenue dans sa juvenes, but when the central figure was a man in the prime of life, some reason had to be found, his strength and vitality being restored for his supersession by the appointed healer. This supersession was adequately motivated by the supposed transgression of a fundamental Christian law, entailing as consequence the forfeiture of his crown. I would thus separate the doubling theme as found in Cretine and Wolfram from the wounded theme, equally common to these poets. This latter might possibly be accounted for on the ground of a ritual variant. The first is purely literary, explicable neither on the exoteric nor the esoteric aspect of the ceremony. From the exoteric point of view, there are not, and there cannot be, two kings suffering from parallel disability. The ritual knows one principle of life and one alone. Equally, from the esoteric standpoint, Fisher King and Mame King, representing two different aspects of the same personality, may and probably were represented as two individuals, but one alone is disabled. Further, as the two are in very truth one, they should be equals in age, not of different generations. Thus the Blairist version, which gives us a dead knight, presumably from his having been slain in battle, still in vigorous manhood, and a hail king, is ritually the more correct. The original of Manasseh's version must have been similar, but the fact that by the time it was compiled, the Fisher King was generally accepted as being also the maimed king, led to the introduction of the very awkward and poorly motivated self-wounding incident. It will be noted that in this case, the king is not healed either at the moment of the slaying of his brother's murderer, which would be the logical result of the Donnies of the tale, nor at the moment of contact with a successful quester, but at the mere announcement of his approach. Thus, if we consider the king apart from his title, we find that alike from his position in the story, his close connection with the fortunes of his land and people, and the varying forms of the disability of which he is the victim, 
he corresponds with remarkable exactitude to the central figure of a well-recognized nature ritual and may therefore justly be claimed to belong aboriginate to such a hypothetical source but what about his title why should he be called the fisher king here we strike what i hold to be the main crux of the problem a feature upon which scholars have expended much thought and ingenuity a feature which the authors of the romances themselves either did not always understand or were at pains to obscure by the introduction of the obviously post hoc motive above referred to i e that he was called the fisher king because of his devotion to the pastime of fishing a propos of which heinzel sensibly remarks that the story of the fisher king presupposes a legend of this personage only vaguely known and remembered by creatine practically the interpretations already attempted fall into two main groups which we may designate as the christian legendary and the celtic folklore interpretations for those who hold that the grail story is essentially and fundamentally christian finding its root in eucharistic symbolism the title is naturally connected with the use of the fish symbol in early christianity the ichthyus anagram as applied to christ the title fishers of men bestowed upon the apostles the papal ring of the fisherman though it must be noted that no manipulation of the christian symbolism avails satisfactorily to account for the lamentable condition into which the bearer of the title has fallen the advocates of the folklore theory on the other hand practically evade this main difficulty by basing their interpretation upon boron's story of the catching of the fish by bronze equating this character with the brand of welsh tradition and pointing to the existence in irish and welsh legend of a salmon of wisdom the tasting of whose flesh confers all knowledge hurt's acute remarks that the incident as related by boron is not of such importance as to justify the stress laid upon the name rich fisher by later writers we may also note in this connection that the grail romances never employ the form wise fisher which if the origin of the name were that proposed above we might reasonably expect to find it is obvious that a satisfactory solution of the problem must be sought elsewhere in my opinion the key to the puzzle is to be found in the rightful understanding of the fish fisher symbolism students of the grail literature have been too prone to treat the question on the christian basis alone oblivious of the fact that christianity did no more than take over and adapt to its own use a symbolism already endowed with a deeply rooted prestige and importance so far the subject cannot be said to have received adequate treatment certain of its aspects have been more or less fully discussed in monographs and isolated articles but we still await a comprehensive study on this most important question so far as the present state of our knowledge goes we can affirm with certainty that the fish is a life symbol of immemorial antiquity and that the title of fisher has from the earliest ages been associated with deities who were held to be specially connected with the origin and preservation of life in indian cosmogony manu finds a little fish in the water in which he would wash his hands it asks and receives his protection asserting that when grown to full size it will save manu from the universal deluge 
This is Jasa, the greatest of all fish. The first avatar of Vishnu, the creator, is a fish. At the great feast in honor of this god, held on the twelfth day of the first month of the Indian year, Vishnu is represented under the form of a golden fish, and addressed in the following terms. Wie du, o Gott, in Gestalt eines Fisches, die in der Unterwelt befindlichen Weden gerettet hast, so rette auch mich. The fish avatar was afterwards transferred to Buddha. In Buddhist religion, the symbols of the fish and fisher are freely employed. Thus, in Buddhist monasteries, we find drums and gongs in the shape of a fish. But the true meaning of the symbol, while still regarded as sacred, has been lost, and the explanations, like the explanations of the Grail Romances, are often fantastic afterthoughts. In the Mahayana scriptures, Buddha is referred to as the fisherman who draws fresh from the ocean of samsara to the light of salvation. There are figures and pictures which represent Buddha in the act of fishing, an attitude which, unless interpreted in a symbolic sense, would be utterly at variance with the tenets of the Buddhist religion. This also holds good for Chinese Buddhism. The goddess Kuan Yin, Avalokitesvara, the female deity of mercy and salvation, is depicted either on or holding a fish. In the Han palace of Kung Ming Chi, there was a fish carved in jade, to which in time of drought sacrifices were offered, the prayers being always answered. Both in India and China the fish is employed in funeral rites. In India, a crystal bowl with fish handles was found in a reputed tomb of Buddha. In China, the symbol is found on stone slabs enclosing the coffin, on bronze urns, vases, etc. Even as the Babylonians had the fish or fisher god, Oanes, who revealed to them the arts of writing, agriculture, etc., and was, as Eisler put it, teacher and lord of all wisdom. So the Chinese Fuhi, who is pictured with the mystic tablets containing the mysteries of heaven and earth, is, with his consort and retinue, represented as having a fish's tail. The writer of the article in The Open Court asserts that the fish was sacred to those deities who were supposed to lead men back from the shadows of death to life. If this be really the case, we can understand the connection of the symbol first with Orpheus, later with Christ, as Eisler remarks. Orpheus is connected with nearly all the mystery and a great many of the ordinary Sithonic cults in Greece and Italy. Christianity took its first tentative steps into the reluctant world of Greco-Roman paganism under the benevolent patronage of Orpheus. There is thus little reason to doubt that if we regard the fish as a divine life symbol of immemorial antiquity, we shall not go very far astray. We may note here that there was a fish known to the Semites by the name of Adonis. Although, as the title signifies, Lord, and is generic rather than specific, too much stress cannot be laid upon it. It is more interesting to know that in Babylonian cosmology, Adapa the wise, the son of Ea, is represented as a fisher. In the ancient Sumerian laments for Tammuz, previously referred to, that God is frequently addressed as Divine Lamgar, Lord of the Net, the nearest equivalent I have so far found to our Fisher King. 
Whether the phrase is here used in an actual or a symbolic sense, the connection of idea is sufficiently striking. In the opinion of the most recent writers on the subject, the Christian fish symbolism derives directly from the Jewish, the Jews, on their side having borrowed freely from the Syrian belief and practice. What may be regarded as the central point of Jewish fish symbolism is the tradition that, at the end of the world, Messias will catch the great fish Leviathan and divide its flesh as food among the faithful. As a foreshadowing of this messianic feast, the Jews were in the habit of eating fish upon the Sabbath. During the captivity, under the influence of the worship of the goddess Atargatis, they transferred the ceremony to the Friday, the eve of the Sabbath, a position which is retained to the present day. Isa remarks that, in Galicia, one can see Israelite families, in spite of their being reduced to the extremest misery, procuring on Fridays a single gudgeon to eat, divided into fragments at nightfall. In the 16th century, Rabbi Solomon Luria protested strongly against this practice. Fish, he declared, should be eaten on the Sabbath itself, not on the eve. This Jewish custom appears to have been adopted by the primitive church and early Christians on their side, celebrated a sacramental fish meal. The catacomb supplies with numerous illustrations, fully described by the two writers referred to. The elements of this mystic meal were fish, bread and wine, the last being represented in the messianic tradition. At the end of the meal, God will give to the most worthy, i.e. to King David, the cup of blessing, one of fabulous dimensions. Fish play an important part in mystery cults, as being the holy food. Upon a tablet dedicated to the Phrygian martyr Magna, we find fish and cup. And Dolga, speaking of a votive tablet discovered in the Balkans, says, Here is der fish immer und immer weide allzu deutlich als die heilige Speisi eines mysterium cultus hervorgehoben. Now I would submit that here and not in Celtic folklore is to be found the source of Boron's fish meal. Let us consider the circumstances. Joseph and his followers, in the course of their wanderings, find themselves in danger of famine. The position is somewhat curious, as apparently the leaders have no idea of the condition of their followers, till the latter appeal to bronze. Bronze informs Joseph, who prays for aid and counsel from the Grail. A voice from heaven bids him send his brother-in-law, Bronze, to catch a fish. Meanwhile, he, Joseph, is to prepare a table, set the grail covered with a cloth in the centre opposite his own seat, and the fish which Bronze shall catch on the other side. He does this, and the seats are filled. Si s'assit une grande partie, et plus si haute de celles qui n'y s'estremit, que les celles qui s'estre. Those who are seated at the table are conscious of a great douceur, and l'accomplissement le liqueurs. The rest feel nothing. Now compare this with the Irish story of the Salmon of Wisdom. Finn Mac Cumhale enters the service of his namesake, Finn Eager, who for seven years had remained by the Boyan, watching the Salmon of Lynn Fake, which it had been foretold Finn should catch. The younger lad, who conceals his name, catches the fish. He is said to watch it while it roasts, but is warned not to eat it. 
Touching it with his thumb, he is burned and puts his thumb to his mouth to cool it. Immediately he becomes possessed of all knowledge and thereafter has only to chew his thumb to obtain wisdom. Mr. Nutt remarks, The incident in Boron's poem has been recast in the mould of medieval Christian symbolism, but I think the older myth can still be clearly discerned and is wholly responsible for the incident as found in the Conte de Grolle. But when these words were written, we were in ignorance of the sacramental fish meal, common alike to Jewish, Christian, and mystery cults, a meal which offers a far closer parallel to Boron's romance than does the Finn story, in which beyond the catching of a fish, there is absolutely no point of contact with our romance. Neither Joseph nor Bronze derives wisdom from the eating thereof. It is not they who detect the sinners. The severance between the good and the evil is brought about automatically. The Finn story has no common meal and no idea of spiritual blessings, such as are connected therewith. In the case of the messianic fish meal, on the other hand, the parallel is striking. In both cases, it is a communal meal. In both cases, the privilege of sharing it is the reward of the faithful. In both cases, it is a foretaste of the bliss of paradise. Furthermore, as remarked above, the practice was, at one time, of very widespread prevalence. Now, whence did Boron derive his knowledge? From Jewish, Christian, or mystery sources? This is a question not very easy to decide. In view of the pronounced Christian tone of Boron's romance, I should feel inclined to exclude the first. Also, the Jewish fish meal seems to have been of a more open, general, and less symbolic character than the Christian. It was frankly an anticipation of a promised future bliss, obtainable by all. Orthodox Christianity, on the other hand, knows nothing of the sacred fish meal. So far as I am aware, it forms no part of any apocalyptic expectation, and where this special symbolism does occur, it is often under conditions which place its interpretation outside the recognized category of Christian belief. A noted instance in point is the famous epitaph of Bishop Abricure, over the correct interpretation of which scholars have spent much time and ingenuity. In this curious text, Abricure, after mentioning his journey, says, Paul I had as my guide. Faith, however, always went ahead and set before me, as food, a fish, from a fountain, a huge one, a clean one, which a holy virgin has caught. This she gave to the friends ever to eat as food, having good wine and offering it watered together with bread. Abacur had this engraved when seventy-two years of age in truth. Whoever can understand this, let him pray for Abacur. Eisler, I am here quoting from the Quest article, remarks, As the last line of our quotation gives us quite plainly to understand, a number of words which we have italicized are obviously used in an unusual metaphorical sense, that is to say, as terms of the Christian mystery language. While Harnack, admitting that the Christian character of the text is indisputable, adds significantly, Aber das Christentum der Kruskirche ist es nicht. Thus, it is possible that, to the various points of doubtful orthodoxy which scholars have noted as characteristic of the Grail Romances, Boron's fish meal should also be added.
Should it be objected that the dependence of a medieval romance upon a Jewish tradition of such antiquity is scarcely probable, I would draw attention to the voyage of St. Brandon, where the monks, during their prolonged wanderings, annually kept their resurrection, i.e. celebrate their Easter Mass, on the back of a great fish. On their first meeting with this monster, St. Brandon tells them it is the greatest of all fishes, and is named Justoni, a name which bears a curious resemblance to the Jasa of the Indian tradition, cited above. In this last instance, the connection of the fish with life, renewed and sustained, is undeniable. The original source of such a symbol is most probably to be found in the belief, referred to in a previous chapter, that all life comes from the water, but that a more sensual and less abstract idea was also operative, appears from the close connection of the fish with the goddess Astarte, or Atagartus, a connection here shared by the dove. Cumont, in his Les Religions Orientales dans le Paganisme Romain, says, Two animals were held in general reverence, namely dove and fish. Countless flocks of doves greeted the traveller when he stepped on shore at Ascalon, and in the outer courts of all the temples of Astarte, one might see the flutter of their white wings. The fish were preserved in ponds near to the temple, and superstitious dread forbade their capture, for the goddess punished such sacrilege, smiting the offender with ulcers and tumours. But at certain mystic banquets, priests and initiates partook of the otherwise forbidden food, in the belief that they thus partook of the flesh of the goddess. Eisler and other scholars are of the opinion that it was the familiarity with this ritual, gained by the Jews during the captivity, that led to the adoption of the Friday fish meal, already referred to, Friday being the day dedicated to the goddess and later to her equivalent Venus. From the Jews the custom spread to the Christian church, where it still flourishes, its true origin, it is needless to say, being wholly unsuspected. Dove and fish also appear together in an ancient iconography. In Comte Goblet de Alvella's work, The Migration of Symbols, there is an illustration of a coin of Zizicus on which is represented an omphalus, flanked by two doves, with a fish beneath and a whole section is devoted to the discussion of the representations of two doves on either side of a temple entrance or of an omphalus. In the author's opinion, the origin of the symbol may be found in the sacred dovecotes of Phoenicia, referred to by Cumont. Chef Telowitz instances the combination of fish meal and dove found on a Jewish tomb of the first century at Syracuse, and remarks that the two are frequently found in combination on Christian tombstones. Students of the Grail Romances will not need to be reminded that the dove makes its appearance in certain of our texts. In the Parsifal, it plays a somewhat important role. Every Good Friday a dove brings from heaven a host, which it lays upon the Grail, and the dove is the badge of the Grail Knights. In the prose Lancelot, the coming of the Grail procession is heralded by the entrance through the window of a dove, bearing a censer in its beak. Is it not possible that it was the already existing connection in nature ritual of these two, dove and fish, which led to the introduction of the former into our romances, where its role is never really adequately motivated? 
it is further to be noted that besides dove and fish the syrians reverenced stones more especially meteoric stones which they held to be endowed with life potency another point of contact with our romances that the fish was considered a potent factor in ensuring fruitfulness is proved by certain prehistoric tablets described by chef tillowitz where fish horse and swastika or in another instance fish and reindeer are found in a combination which unmistakably denotes that the object of the votive tablet was to ensure the fruitfulness of flocks and herds with this intention its influence was also invoked in marriage ceremonies the same writer points out that the jews in poland were accustomed to hold a fish feast immediately on the conclusion of the marriage ceremony and that a similar practice can be proven for the ancient greeks at the present day the jews of tunis exhibit a fish's tail on a cushion at their weddings in some parts of india the newly wedded pair waded knee-deep into the water and caught fish in a new garment during the ceremony a brahmin student from the shore asked solemnly what seest thou to which the answer was returned sons and cattle in all these cases there can be no doubt that it was the prolific nature of the fish a feature which it shares in common with the dove which inspired practice and intention surely the effect of this cumulative body of evidence is to justify us in the belief that fish and fisher being as they undoubtedly are life symbols of immemorial antiquity are by virtue of their origin entirely in their place in a sequence of incidents which there is solid ground for believing derive ultimately from a cult of this nature that boron's fish meal that the title of fisher king are not accidents of literary invention but genuine and integral parts of the common body of tradition which has furnished the incidents and scene of the grail drama can it be denied that while from the standpoint of a christian interpretation the character of the fisher king is simply incomprehensible from the standpoint of folktale inadequately explained from that of a ritual survival it assumes a profound meaning and significance he is not merely a deeply symbolic figure but the essential centre of the whole cult a being semi-divine semi-human standing between his people and land and the unseen forces which control their destiny if the grail story be based upon a life ritual the character of the fisher king is of the very essence of the tale and his title so far from being meaningless expresses for those who are at pains to seek the intention and object of the perplexing whole the fisher king is as i suggested above the very heart and centre of the whole mystery and i contend that with an adequate interpretation of this enigmatic character the soundness of the theory providing such an interpretation may be held to be definitely proved end of chapter nine from ritual to romance recorded by dawn si pretoria south africa eight june 2021